The antidote. 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 You're listening to the antidote with Dave Hawkins. With Christian music that doesn't suck.
I'm Dave Hawkins. Thanks for connecting to a new edition of The Antidote. Everyone has bands and artists they really enjoy. And I probably have hundreds and hundreds of favorites. That's why doing The Antidote is kind of selfish. It gives me a chance to meet and to speak with so many artists. Tonight, I'll pull in a longtime favorite, because I've been enjoying the music of Fine China for almost 30 years. Yeah, this band has longevity. Their sound is pop, it's indie, it's also rock, and some of their latest music could probably be best described as being new age. One thing for sure, their style has continued to evolve over the decades, but it still carries their original sound like what we heard on tonight's first track from 2000 was They Will Love Us For Our Instruments. You know, I had so many questions for Fine China's frontman Rob Witham that this feature has evolved into being a two-parter. And Rob's a busy guy, so he had this talk with the antidote as he was out on the highway. Let's hear about the earliest days of the band and the song I'm Sorry. It's a huge pleasure to have Rob Witham of Fine China come to The Antidote for a chat. I really appreciate you taking time to come to the show, Rob. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Right from the start, I should admit that I'm a longtime fan of Fine China. I mean, I first got into your music when I bought your Tooth & Nail release, When the World Sings, and that was back in 2000. But the band had already been around a few years. What about telling us how Fine China first came together? Yeah, um, so we were sort of, you know, of that era in the 90s. All and If you were a kid who was into, like, playing guitar music, you would just try to find, like, some friends and put a band together. So that's essentially what happened uh, with us. You know, I had a had a friend uh, who was at, went to church with who played bass, and we had a, she had a friend who played the drums, and I had some songs, and we just kind of, like, went for it, and it kind of went from there. Um, we... Uh, Pretty quickly ended up getting a new, a different bass player, who's Greg Markov, who's been in the band for pretty much from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. So we were a three-piece for a while. It was me and, and Greg Markov, our bass player, and a guy named Danny on drums. And uh, pretty early on, we got connected with Jeff Cloud from Velvet Blue Music um, and uh, and uh, like Jason Martin and Ronnie Martin did a show with those guys and kind of like met everybody and got pulled into VBM off of that. And it was just sort of sort of off to the races after that we did a couple of uh, eps for velvet blue and then uh ended up getting on tooth and nail through ronnie who was kind of working for tooth and nail doing some stuff at the time so yeah it all happened kind of kind of quickly and just kind of organically it sounds like you guys started this as a serious project like it wasn't just for fun well you know the reason i wanted to have a band is because i was i wanted to write songs you know it wasn't just like it wasn't really just hanging out and jamming it was definitely like i wanted to i wanted to figure out how to write music and you know ultimately be able to record stuff so yeah it was it was pretty as serious as you can be when you're like 18 years old about anything <laughs> but uh i was on a mission somewhat and wanted to you know make a particular kind of music and uh you know we needed a band and people to help me play it and that yeah exactly
I'd like to hear about the band's very first release, The Beautiful. I mean, can you imagine? That was back in 96. What was it like heading to the studio and putting that first release together? Yeah, so actually The Beautiful was a 7-inch that had a song. The A-side was a song called In the Winter that was actually on our first EP. And then it had a B-side that was a song called I'm Sorry that we just recorded you know, in its own session. So I think actually it wasn't our first I think the EP, uh, No One Knows, came out first, and I think The Beautiful came out right after that, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, um, yeah, we uh, on that 7-inch, we to do the B-side, we got together with uh, – Cloud wanted us to work with this guy named Wayne Everett, who was like – he was playing drums for Starfire at the time, and I think he was in the prayer chain and a bunch of other stuff. So he just wanted to come in and help us produce it. So we just kind of spent a day at this little studio in Riverside and just put out – recorded the B-side and – Drove back to Phoenix the next day. That's kind of what we did in those days. We would drive out to uh, to Riverside, uh, which is where the studio uh, was. So we would like do a little, you know, five hour drive from Phoenix out to Riverside, record for a day, and then we would just like drive home. We did that like a bunch of times over the year, the first couple of years. Oh man, talk about road time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wasn't too bad. In the winter time. 
to admit, that's a song I don't really care for. But just like every artist, they have to progress from some starting point. From the two-sided single, The Beautiful, that was In the Winter. We'll move back to our chat with Rob and bring in a pair of songs from the No One Knows release. The title track and Your Amy. I'm just going to say, like, if you wanted to talk about first release, that would be the No One Knows EP. And so that was recorded at the same studio. It was a studio called Moon Song. There's a guy named Bob Moon. A lot of guys, a lot of tooth and nail bands worked with him at the time. And Jason Martin had had him do some stuff on his early records for Starflyer. And so we spent a couple of days with Ronnie producing at that studio to do to do No One Knows. And that was kind of our, our really our first time in a studio, you know, to do anything. So we just had no idea what we were doing. And it's very, uh, very simple, very quick in and out. Didn't, didn't spend a lot of time on anything. <laughs> just kind of recorded it and uh, mixed it. And it was done in a couple of days. Well, having Ronnie, you had a music master there guiding you along. Right. Yeah. He was, he was always really helpful, really kind to our band. Take 
This is Rob Witham, and you are listening to Fine China on the Antidote.
China released a pair of EPs with Velvet Blue, and that was before heading over to Tooth and Nail Records for the Fine China full-length When the World Sings. Were you actually looking for that change? Yeah, we were starting to record a, a full-length record for Velvet Blue Music uh, with Ronnie producing again, and uh, we just we were having just some issues and wasn't sounding as great as we wanted it to and at the time ronnie was also doing some a and r work for tooth and nail uh for their little it was an imprint that he ran called plastic music that had kind of more sort of electronic kind of pop bands um and so ronnie was was running that and he had kind of a really natural like stream you know to pull us over into tooth and nail and we were excited about that for just obvious reasons you know it was a big it had good distribution for records and was just a it was a a larger label and it excited us as kind of like a young band to be able to do that um and so yeah we kind of midstream sort of pulled the plug on that album and then when we signed with tooth and nail we ended up booking a couple of weeks uh, at a different studio in huntington beach called the green room a guy named gene eugene ran that and so we kind of we took yeah, so we, t- we were excited about that, and we took some of the tracks that we had done at the other studio and, and uh, brought those over, and then we also started over on a lot of stuff and brought in some new songs. It was kind of a reboot of what was supposed to have been our first record on Velvet Blue. We just kind of rebooted everything, and uh, that's what became When the World Sings. Well, you guys had a hit with the lead single, We Rock Harder Than You Ever Knew. <laughs> so I'm going to condense the lyrics a little bit here. Where is the gentleness and hope of the Lord in all these men who compose violence? And now we all hope that you will sing with us now, because we think you will like that. That song actually makes it sound like you're describing your mission as a band. Maybe so. Yeah, I don't know. We were never really a band on a mission like that. I think we just really were about the music. However, we had, especially in our early younger days, kind of a 
I don't know what you want to call it, kind of a rebellious punk spirit, even though we weren't playing like, you know, punk rock. We sort of <laughs> felt like we were kind of, you know, when you're, when you're sort of a reactionary kind of bad doing something different, we kind of reveled in that. And we, we would go to like, we play a lot of Christian festivals and stuff. And it just felt like everybody else was doing like hardcore rap rock. And we were kind of like fed up with it and wanted to kind of get our digs in a little bit at it. That was all that was. Um, we just, uh, probably was like born out of youthful arrogance too, just thinking we were better than everybody else, even though we weren't, but we kind of hated the whole hardcore rap rock scene that was happening around us at that time. I wanted to kind of like be different from that. Well, you certainly were that. rock harder than you ever knew a definitive hit for fine china and it's also a song that has had a lot of plays at my house the band chose an amusing title for its next album on tooth and nail and from that release don't say nothing the interesting thing about the 90s is when you guys started that's when bands could try almost anything and draw in an audience yeah, that's true, especially in the Christian market. There was, you know, something for everybody, sort of. Now, in those early days, did you really know what you wanted Fine China to be? Like, what kind of an impact you wanted to make? The kind of message or the kind of sound? 
I knew, yeah, in some ways. Oh, I knew that I wanted to and was just scratching the surface on how to write, you know, kind of traditional pop songs that had a really strong kind of melodic con a sad and melancholy. Like I always knew from the beginning that that was the kind of songs I wanted to write. Pretty early on, I kind of like latched on to the, as far as like our aesthetic being sort of an 80s influenced aesthetic. So we were using a lot of the same sounds that you would have found in like British kind of new wave and post-punk bands from the early 80s. So like the kind of guitar sounds we were getting and using, you know, synthesizers with strings. And we, we knew that pretty early on that that was going to be the template. And we're still pretty much using that to this day. And that was really it. And, and it really, for me, it was just a dedication to being a songwriter and wanting to really focus on that um, as opposed to, you know, our band's image or any of the other number of kind of dumb things that bands get fixated on. For me, it was just about wanting to write and record, you know, the best music that I could. And that, that's still kind of our focus to this day. Then were you actually doing this for an audience or were you doing this for yourself? Um, I've never really loved playing live shows. So for me, yeah, primarily it was like, I just loved being in my recording stuff on my four track and writing. Um, so yeah, it really was never, it was never born out of a place of like, yeah, wanting to play for everybody. And you know, that's fine. A lot of other bands are more into that. We never really were. We were never really a good live band. Uh, we never really spent that much time worrying about that. We were kind of more about the, the artistic and the, the music element of it. And then you sort of have to play shows though. So we mm -hmm. would do that. We had some, we had fun with it, but it was never really our focus. You realize how much you're dating yourself saying a four track. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yep. We uh, had a four track and used it a lot. Now 2002 saw the release of you make me hate music. And that really is a sad album. So I'm going to throw in a few of the lyrics. Hug every friend says, I know I'm a fool. I made a mess of everything I do. Rock can't last forever brings in the line. Everybody needs to learn to get over it. You were a saint says, come on, come on. I'm sick of talking like a desperate man. I've done all I can. And now here's a final one. You ain't happy says, happy wasn't how you wanted to spend your life. You're the songwriter. So you've got to sum up that album. Was it you who was unhappy? Yeah, sort of. I mean, it was kind of kind of what I mentioned earlier. Again, like the scene that we were in, kind of finding it to be kind of a, an irritating thing. And uh, But again, I, in retrospect, some of it was kind of self-effacing too. It was kind of like, it was sort of feeling like, you know, every, you make such a big deal out of this, these kind of rock songs that you're recording and it just seems like so important. But if you kind of step back from it, the whole thing is kind of kind of absurd. So it was kind of wrestling with that, both the the seriousness that we wanted to take it with and to be really good and to succeed, but also realizing like, man, you can kind of lose the plot a little bit. Like this whole thing is kind of, kind of a joke in a way too. So was, there was some tension, you know, for me trying to figure out how to navigate some of that stuff. Don't say nothing Don't say something 
why don't we stay on that happy, unhappy theme? How did you feel having that as your final tooth and nail release? Yeah, it was it was not unexpected. Um, we had originally signed a three album deal with Tooth and Nail, but um, they had the option, you know, to renew that or not after every album. And we knew like we were not selling a lot of records. That they were definitely doing us a huge favor um, by keeping us on the label. And you know, I think they liked the band and they they liked what we were doing. But at the end of the day, you know, I think us and some of the other weirder bands on the label just weren't able to keep up with kind of what what needed to happen sales wise and touring wise for being on a label of that size so we weren't we weren't surprised at all when they let us go it's not a big deal we never had any animosity about it we i just always felt like it was crazy that we we're actually able to put a couple of records out on tooth and nail just with how small and obscure of a band that we were i just felt like that i was really grateful for the two records that we got and so yeah that's kind of how i felt about it I guess realistically, your music really was aimed at a bit of a niche market. Yeah, it kind of was, I suppose. It just was like there was a small subsection of people who followed Tooth and Nail who would have been interested in what we were doing. And that was always fine with us. You know, we weren't really too concerned about that part of it. What were you concerned about then? It was just the quality of the music itself. Yeah, we were really, we were like a band that's about the music. So and every band probably kind of says that same thing. But for us, that was really like, you know, writing it, recording, getting together and like working out our arrangements. Like we loved that part of it. We loved kind of the aesthetic kind of working of our sound. It was kind of almost like you look at it like an art project, you know, more than a performance project. We loved the art aspect of it. Oh, 
So then in 2005, you moved on to a micro-label, I guess effectively, for the Jaws of Life. That was a really strong album. I think My Worst Nightmare might have been its most popular song. But for me personally, I think the standout was Prosecute Electrocute. It begins as this sweet love song, but then it takes on a twist. Do you want to explain? Wow, yeah, I haven't really thought about that song in a long time. Uh, I don't really, I don't remember. Um, (laughs) I don't really remember what was going on with that one. Yeah, so for me, like, the lyrical content of songs is always, like, very much secondary to uh, the music itself, even just in terms of the order of operations for when I'm writing stuff. So what what happens is, like, I'll have sometimes a song title or, you know, maybe I'll have a phrase, you know, for the chorus or something. And then when I'm writing and doing, like, demoing, I'll kind of just, like, put down a bunch of stuff that doesn't make any sense but allows me to kind of hash out the melody and then what happens is like the night before I go in or whatever, two nights before I got to actually record vocals, I'll have to figure out what the lyrics are going to be. And I always hate that. <laughs> I, I hate doing that. But it, what happens is you sort of end up, it's like playing connect the dots or something. You're kind of like connecting these dots and like maybe, maybe then like 80% of it kind of makes some sense. And sometimes you stumble upon things that are interesting and other times you don't. So I never pretended to be like a, you know, a poet and a lyricist at all, but sometimes fun things can happen. That's why I had to talk to you, because I never would have thought about that.
Prosecute Electrocute from Fine China's turn-of-the-century release, Jaws of Life. Before that, we squeezed in the tune, Your Heart Was Made of Gold. This is our first installment of a two-part interview and feature with the great Fine China. I've been surprised how often Rob Witham kind of negates the talent of this band. Maybe he's just being self-effacing. So for tonight, we've heard the then of Fine China. Next week will be the now. Rob will share about how the band burnt out their return to the music scene and what's turned out to be their most artistic releases. That comes next time on The Antidote. For now, we'll go back to the conversation with Rob and one of their most popular songs, My Worst Nightmare. Thanks so much for connecting with The Antidote, and I'll see you next week. There's a few things that make Fine China song lyrics stand out. One is that the songs often have these provocative titles that don't necessarily connect with the lyrics. Yeah. My second thought is that the lyrics flip from being obvious to being cryptic. But I do think that the most important point is that they all seem to be personal. (laughs) I'm sorry. I guess that's kind of covering Mm -hmm. a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts? Yeah, like... I've always loved song titles that are kind of larger than life. So, like, I love the Smiths and Morrissey's kind of approach to that. And then I always liked New Order. Like, New Order often would have song titles that had nothing to do with anything. They were just a great title. And I always liked that, like, Bizarre Love Triangle, you know, or, like, whatever. Uh, some of their The Perfect Kiss, you know, these they're just these really elegant interesting titles that didn't really tell you anything about what the song was about, but I kind of always liked that. So I I was never really scared to do that. Um, And then, yeah, like when you're writing lyrics the way I do, yes, it's going to come in and out of focus. I don't know why, but yeah, I tend to write things a lot of times in the first person um, and sort of dwell in that mode. I honestly don't know why it was not an intentional thing. It just kind of happened that way. You figure out how to do something. You, I sort of taught myself and listened to stuff that I liked and figured out, and then you get into habits that just stay with you for good or ill for your whole life. It seems to be natural to have Morrissey influence you. Right, yeah, for sure. Probably, again, more, more melodically, the way that he structures his melodies and kind of the sadness that he just always achieves that. That was always a really big instructive element for me in, in how to sing and how to write vocal melodies. He was uh, definitely part of the template, for sure. Well, you mentioned about sad, and I've brought that up too. But you'd never refer to Fine China as an emo band. No, I don't think we ever did, just because I think what people thought of as an emo band sounded a lot different from what we sounded like, you know, in terms of the guitars and stuff. 